Freedom of speech. Fundamental rights. Freedom of uh, conscience. Academic freedom. Freedom of press. And the right to listen. You're listening to So To Speak, the free speech podcast. Brought to you by FIRE, the foundation for individual rights and expression. Hey folks, it's Nico Perino here. Returning from paternity leave, I want to thank Tyler McQueen and Arpana Sheth for manning the ship while I was gone. I've heard great things uh, from listeners about the episodes that they hosted, Tyler's two episodes about free speech and abolitionism and civil liberties and the Civil War, and Arpana, of course, hosting a live, so to speak, webinar about the 2022-2023 Supreme Court term. Before we get started with today's conversation, I want to flag for everyone that FIRE is sponsoring a debate out in LA on September 13th that I hope all of you will attend. This is in partnership with the Free Press, which we've been working with uh, for a number of months now as sponsors of some of their content. Um, But we're really enthusiastic about this inaugural debate that the free press is putting on. It's their first live debate, and FIRE has long kind of taken an interest in debate as a result of our concern about free speech culture. We think debate is a great vehicle to uh, instill some of the values, the free speech cultural values that we'd like to see in broader society, the idea that we can speak out on issues we care about, advocate vociferously for them, and talk across lines of difference. The topic of this debate is, has the sexual revolution failed? And we've got two debaters on each side. On one side, arguing that it has not failed, uh, is Grimes, who is a famous musician. I'm sure most of you are familiar with her, uh, along with Sarah Hader, who is a writer and and the co-host of the podcast, A Special Place in Hell. On the other side of the argument that arguing that the sexual revolution has failed is Anna Kachian, who is a co-host of the podcast, The Red Scare, and Louise Perry, who authored a book entitled The Case Against the Sexual Revolution. Again, this will be on Wednesday, September 13th at the Theater at the Ace Hotel. Doors open at 6, showtime is at 7, and you can get tickets, which are still available as of this recording, at thefp.com slash debates. Again, that is thefp.com slash debates. You can also find Fire plugging it on our social media channels. Uh, I'll have a link in the show notes. But it's kind of a coincidence, in fact, that I'm plugging this debate event on a day in which the topic of the podcast is debates. So today we are talking about trends in high school debate um, that some might call a liberal or that make debate more difficult. Uh, One of our guests today kind of blew the lid on this conversation and catalyzed, I should say, a national conversation about high school debate when he published an article, coincidentally also, uh, in the free press um, about some illiberal trends in high school debate, namely kind of the insertion of ideology in the judging of high school debates. Our guest is James Fishback. He is the founder and executive director of Incubate Debate, which is a organization that hosts free debate tournaments to students across Florida. He spent four years as a high school debater 
in Broward County, Florida, with a number of placements at the National Speech and Debate Association's National Championships. And after college, he was a debate coach in Miami. We also have Matthew Adelstein, who is a, or was, I should say, a high school debater. He's now a rising sophomore studying philosophy at the University of Michigan, and he's a writer on utilitarianism. He publishes a newsletter on utilitarianism on Substack called Bentham's Newsletter, writing under the pseudonym Bentham's Bulldog. So James, Matthew, welcome onto the show. Thanks, Nico. Thanks for having me. So I want to take a step back before we kind of dive into the topics of James's free press articles and, and get a sense of the high school debate landscape. I was not a high school debater. Uh, I did a lot of sports, not a lot of academics when I was in high school. <laughs> I played some music in a death metal band. So debate just wasn't my world. So I'd like to hear from both of you how you got involved in debate and why. James, maybe start with you. Absolutely. It's a real pleasure to be here, Nico, and to be here with Matthew as well. Debate for me was an opportunity to channel a passion that I had for politics and economics at a very young age, but I just didn't have a way to engage with that at a high level and to be exposed to different views. So I started out freshman year uh, on the debate team down in Broward County, Florida, and started out, you know, with a really bad speech impediment, with a really bad stutter as a as a as a freshman in high school. To help debate helped me overcome that, exposed me to perspectives that I otherwise wouldn't have been exposed to, gave me confidence, gave me knowledge, gave me a skill set that I pretty much use every single day in my in the real world stuff that I do. And um, I'm just grateful for it. But debate for me changed everything. And more than anything, it, it taught me the importance of being able to disagree agreeably. How about you, Matthew? So I, when I was in around seventh grade, I decided I should learn at least something about politics. There was the presidential election going on. And so I started reading about politics, watching the various presidential debates, and uh, I became quite interested in it. And so I began talking about it incessantly. I annoyed all the people around me. And so eventually, you know, after talking about this so much, it was decided that I had to start doing debate um, just as an outlet for my, you know, obsessive monomaniacal focus on politics. Uh, and so that's how I got into the debate. I, the, I picked the high school that I did um, in large part because it had a good debate team and I was just excited to do debate. And like what James said, debate really had a transformative impact on my ability to speak, on my ability to think about the world, and on my ability to do research about complex issues. I think I'm a better writer, thinker, and speaker as a result of debate than I would have been if I had never done debate. And Matthew, how does high school debate work, right? So I'm assuming each school has a club and then those clubs uh, debate clubs at other schools. Is there a national association that kind of organizes these there debates? How do they, how do they, and how do they work? Yeah. And what's, what's like the typical format? Yeah, there is a national association. There are tournaments that are hosted. Uh, and so people will show up to the tournaments. They'll debate at the tournaments different events have different rules. So for example, the kind of debate that I did in my last two years is known as policy debate. Uh, and in policy debate, there's one topic that's agreed upon for the entire year. Uh, and so you have to just do extensive research about a broad topic, like about immigration or criminal justice reform or water policy. And, and James, are debaters assigned a side of an argument or do they, do they choose it? How, do, how does it work? 
Yeah, it'll depend on the event. In the event that Matthew did policy debate, he'll be assigned a side. In other events like congressional debate, which is very popular at the national level, students get to pick their own side. Gotcha. Okay, so James, in your article, you highlight National Speech and Debate Association, which I'm assuming is the largest speech and debate association in the United States. Is that like the premier one? That is the premier. It's the largest. It's the most storied. It has the largest impact nationally. It's the one with, I believe in your article, you note that it has 140,000 young debaters on its roster. Yeah, that's right. And that actually understates it because those are official members who are paying dues. The numbers are probably closer to 300,000. So so in your article, you allege that this association, the National Speech and Debate Association, has been hijacked in some part by... Uh, judges who are ideological, for lack of a better phrase, right? Who put together what are called paradigms that give debaters insight into how they judge debates and ultimately rule on who is going to be the winner. So can you talk about these paradigms? Absolutely. So Nico, the way a paradigm works, essentially it's an online profile. And it's an online profile that competitors like me and Matthew would be able to see before the round about our judge and what their preferences are. Now, let's rewind eight to 10 years. Your average paradigm would say something along the lines of, I'd like you to speak at a measured pace as opposed to 300 words a minute. I prefer primary over secondary source information. And then maybe something along the lines of, I want you to weigh your impacts with those of the opposing team, essentially to tell me why your arguments matter. That's all fine and good. That's perfectly, that's what paradigms were designed to do. But these online profiles that students now read before the rounds sound a lot more like the Twitter profile, sorry, X, the X profile (laughs) of a social activist. So let me just read one of them to you right here. This is from the national college debate champion in 2019, Lila Lavender, who's judged hundreds of rounds of debate over the last couple of years. She tells students before the round in her paradigm, quote, before anything else, including being a debate judge, I am a Marxist, Leninist, Maoist. I cannot check the revolutionary proletarian science at the door. I will no longer evaluate and thus ever vote for rightist, capitalist, imperialist arguments. She goes on to give examples of those arguments, which include capitalism good, defense of the US, Zionism, normalizing Israel, U.S. white fascist policing good. So for that young sophomore who walks into that debate round, who's spent months preparing for that very moment, she then looks at that paradigm and says, wait, hold on a second. I don't stand a chance. My argument rests on the police are a force for good and reducing violence, or capitalism is the greatest force possible to reducing abject poverty. So that's how these paradigm works. And and over the my two-part series for the free press, I looked at a lot of paradigms and really explained what impact they're having on on high school debate today. Matthew, when you were a debater, did you look at the paradigms for all of your judges? Is that just standard practice? Yeah. Before a judge judges you in a round, you would look over what their paradigm says. And in fact, uh, the way that judge paradigms work, it's not just, they're not just for the purpose of uh, allowing the debaters before the round to know what's going on. They're also for the purpose of before a tournament, you rank the judges, uh, depending on how the tournament works, you often rank the judges from one to six, where one is the, the ones you like best. 
and six the ones you like worst. And so you see the paradigms of every judges, uh, of every judge in a tournament often. And so you see the sort of torrent of judges expressing clearly ideological left-wing biases in their paradigm, describing how uh, they prefer various left-wing arguments. And it just becomes very clear after you read paradigm after paradigm that there are lots of people who admit to being explicitly biased in favor of left-wing arguments. And there is not anywhere near the same kind of bias in favor of right-wing arguments. Yeah, that's what that's what I was going to ask. Do you see it ever uh, uh, on behalf of kind of right-wing judges, the same, the same sort of kind of prejudice against left, left-wing arguments? Have you ever seen something like that? I think we... I think we maybe found one paradigm that was like that, where there was one judge who seemed to express that he had a bias in favor of right-wing arguments, or uh, yeah, in favor of right-wing arguments. But this compared to just, you know, dozens and dozens of judges who express left-wing arguments. And I, but I I think part of it is that it's not just about, for every judge who admits to being explicitly biased, there are lots of other judges who don't admit to being explicitly biased but who do things that are indicative that they have left-wing policy preferences. So judges who, for example, in high-level policy debate, it's the case that nearly all judges are perfectly happy if you jettison the topic and just argue about various unrelated things. Of course, the other team can argue for why we should actually discuss the topic. But if you argue that you should win without discussing the topic at all, the vast majority of judges in high-level policy debate are perfectly okay with that. people don't have to put that in their paradigm. It's just assumed that people will be like that. Um, and so I think I think part of the problem is that because debate is so far left, the people who become judges are people who sort of survive the torrent of left-wing bias in debate. And then those people are almost all left themselves. And so then they become biased in the similar ways that the judges who judge them were. Yeah. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm looking at here, James, some of the other examples that you have in your first free press article some quotes from different paradigms. I will drop America first framing in a heartbeat. Uh, I will listen to conservative leaning arguments, but be careful. I reserve the right to end the debate due to to anti-blackness. If you are white, don't run arguments with impacts that primarily affect POCs, people of color. These arguments should belong to the communities they affect. There's one here that it says, if you are discussing immigrants in the round and describe the person as illegal, I will immediately stop the round, give you the loss with low speaks, which is debate speak for low speaker points, uh, give you a stern lecture, and then talk to your coach. I will not have you making the debate space uh, unsafe. There's another who says, I'm extremely skeptical of capitalism good arguments. If you go for them, you better do a lot of analysis to convince me. Obviously, you probably only need to see a few of these in paradigms for judges as you're going through kind of the debate circuit to to get a sense that this sort of bias exists. But is it widespread? I mean, would you say that these sort of ideologically tinged paradigms are the norm? I, I would say so. And I think Matthew's example is, is the right one. I wrote actually about what happened to Matthew at his final debate tournament ever at the Tournament of Champions in the fall of 2022. And what ended up happening was Matthew put out a tweet a couple weeks prior to the tournament that the other team, his opponents, deemed politically incorrect. The debate, Nico, was on U.S. water policy, undoubtedly an important topic in the country. And the other team didn't really address U.S. water policy. Their main argument was how Matthew Adelstein was an unmitigated racist. And so, and and the worst part here is, by the way, anybody can say whatever they want. 
But the worst part here is that the judge actually took the opposing team seriously and then went on to excoriate Matthew himself. That judge, and I'm reading here, quote, of what that judge sent to Matthew afterward in in his written decision. He said, quote, a debate space where racist or violent people are not allowed is preferable to one where they are. And so here's the thing is that judge, if you look at his paradigm to this day, and definitely when he was judging Matthew, we went back and checked, there was nothing to indicate that he would have done that. There's nothing in that paradigm that seemed to indicate that he would allow someone to hijack around on U.S. water infrastructure and the protection of water resources to make a debate about an ad hominem attack, about a tweet that was irrelevant to the round in question. To, you know, there was an, an article that came out this past weekend, actually, uh, in Matthew Iglesias' substack by, uh, by a former debater as well, Maya Bodnick. And she actually put a number to this. And one way, sort of the litmus test that I think is the best litmus test on whether a judge is ideological to the point where they really can't make sense of it, is uh, cannot be an impartial adjudicator, is how willing or rather is the judge willing to seriously evaluate non-topical arguments. So if we come into a debate on NATO, on NATO expansionism, and you argue that U.S. police are racist, and we actually can't debate this topic because U.S. hegemony is anti-Black and so on and so forth, totally irrelevant argument, would you take that seriously? And what Maya's reporting found, and I checked it out myself and it all checks out, is that three out of four, three out of four judges at the most prestigious national tournament would evaluate those off-topic, critical arguments just as they would a legitimate argument that is tied to the topic at hand. Yeah, I want to talk about Maya's article, but before we move there, I want to just ask Matthew to talk a little bit about his experience in April of 2022 at that prestigious Tournament of Champions in Lexington, Kentucky. Um, I'll just review the tweet here because I'm sure our, our listeners are curious. It was the, the initial tweet was from Jeffrey Miller, who's actually been on this podcast before. He's a professor. Uh, we were talking about kind of neurodiversity and free speech issues. Uh, he tweeted out, name one thing that you personally feel is morally disgusting, but that you think rationally should be legal and accepted by society, to which you, Matthew, responded, calling people racial or homophobic slurs. Now, you said you misread that, but I I think you can read that and say, okay, presumably you're saying that calling people racial or homophobic slurs is morally disgusting, but you don't think it should be illegal to do so. Um, Presumably, you know, aligning yourself with the First Amendment in, in most contexts, depending on the facts of any given case. But can you talk a little bit about how you read that tweet and then the fallout when you got to Lexington in April of last year? Yeah. So, I mean, in that case, uh, so I didn't see the part of it where it said socially acceptable. So like, I don't know. I mean, and I think that's sort of an ambiguous term. I certainly think it should be legal to say whatever you want, uh, no matter how offensive your speech is. Um, In terms of whether it should be socially accepted. I mean, it it depends on exactly what we mean by socially accepted. You certainly shouldn't be like kicked out, violently kicked out of society if you, you know, call someone a racial slur. But you know, I think that should be something for which you get pushback um, and for which, you know, people see you badly. Yeah, but you could read that second clause of his tweet to be, it should be that legal standard should be socially accepted by society rather than what is said is socially. So it's kind of ambiguous and maybe a poorly drafted tweet. Um, but it, it, it's, you know, it could be different people can read it different ways. Yeah, I think it was a little bit ambiguous. 
And I think, yeah, and so th this was, this ended up being my last ever round of, uh, of debate in high school and my last ever round of debate total, uh, which I lost to the other team, <laughs> arguing that I'm a bad person. Um, and, you know, it's worth noting that this, that arguments like this, where you just argue that the other team should lose because they're a bad person, are relatively common. If you look at the most prestigious college tournament, for example, there was a debate between two of the best teams in the country, probably the second best team in the country versus the third best team in the country. Uh, and the second or third best team won by arguing that the other team had sent an apology to, that was apparently racist. I mean, it's like, it's... Uh, it, I, in, in your case, Matthew, did they... Did like they or, yeah, in your case, Matthew, did they even debate the topic that was presented, which was uh, protection of water resources? Or, or no? Well, so they made lots of arguments over the course of the debate round. So very often in your first negative speech, they were negative. You'll advance lots of different arguments. So maybe you'll advance one argument where you say they're, they're not topical, another argument where you say their policy is a bad idea. And then in this case, maybe a third argument where you say they should automatically lose on account of them being horrible people. Um, what, can you, then, can you, know, you just for our listeners who aren't familiar, explain what a negative argument means it's you're, I'm assuming there's a prompt there's a proposition and you're mar arguing yeah. the negative side of it got it yeah there's a topic one side is tasked with arguing in favor of it the other side is tasked with arguing against it uh and so but the argument that they ended up going for at the end of the round was that I'm a bad person and I should lose on account of of being a bad person. Did, did you have a debate partner yes and so they were essentially screwed here as well yeah <laughs> Jeez, and and this is is this common the the idea that you will hijack a debate to do what is in effect character assassination and and do you know who you're debating ahead of time so that you can conduct all this sort of background research digging through tweets and I don't know putting together a dossier on who you, whoever your opponent is to to kind of undermine their argument. Yeah, it's not so common. I'd say maybe it happens in one percent of rounds, but it's not so uncommon either. Um, and yeah, I mean, so that's one of the reasons it doesn't happen because it is actually just difficult to dig up dirt on every other team that you might be debating against, um, given that there are a lot of teams at any given tournament, but very often. So, you know, there was one team in college that was quite good. They won the vast majority of their rounds. Um, they, I think maybe one of the most prestigious national tournament, I'm hard to remember the details. Uh, and they just did tons of oppo research where they had like, you know, bat various character attacks of like just tons of the top teams where they would argue that they were bad people. I mean, it was, it's really, uh, and one worry about this, and this is something that I think, you know, listeners to, to the fire podcast will, will be concerned about is that actually making it so that people can get punished for speech that they've said in unrelated domains really has a chilling effect on saying controversial speech. If you combine the fact that most debate judges are, very far left and are quite ideological such that they accept left-wing assumptions dogmatically with the fact that you can lose a round for just expressing views that people disagree with, like, you know, mild support for the First Amendment. This combines to make it so that debaters are incentivized to uh, not say controversial things or to the extent that they are saying controversial things in other domains to make it so that they say controversial things in convoluted ways because there were because if the controversial thing uh 
sounds bad out of context, then they can lose a debate round. I mean, this is these are really horrible incentives. We want high school students and college students to be finding a voice and to be able to speak up about politics, not to be frightened that if they ever say anything about politics, that the farthest left ideologue would find offensive, that they'll automatically lose debate rounds. Yeah. Geez, I... I I am almost diametrically opposed in my personal political beliefs now uh, to what I was in high school. And I would hate to be held accountable for what I said in high school on politics or anything else for that matter um, years Uh, and years later. And Nico, if I may, I just want to add on to Matthew's point. I just by sheer coincidence was at a high school this past weekend hosting one of our free incubate debate camps. And I saw a fire poster with a quote from Frederick Douglass, and I think it's apt here. To suppress free speech is a double wrong. It violates the rights of the hearer as well as those of the speaker. Young Americans need to hear opposing viewpoints that they otherwise might not hear. And for the most part, those viewpoints are conservative viewpoints. And, you know, we're not trying to, the idea, not the, the motivation isn't, well, to convert people or, or to, right? It's to simply expose them to the other side of an argument with civility in these open public debates. And when you look at what happened to Matthew, you know, obviously this is tragic, but not only did these students do it, in many cases, judges encourage encourage students to dig up dirt. So in, in my part two for the free press, I bring up a judge by the name of Zachary Rashovsky. He tells students in his paradigm, I will consider indictments of an opponent on the basis that on the basis that they have done or said something racist, gender, or phobic in their personal behavior, it needs to be clearly documented, a screenshotted Facebook post, or an accusation with references to multiple witnesses. And the violation, Nico, would only have to, quote, fall into the category of a commonly understood violation of basic decency surrounding race or gender. He then goes on to explain that microaggressions would also be considered. So, to your point about how prevalent it is, it's not common, it's not uncommon, I agree with Matthew on that, but it's sort of like Chinese censorship in Beijing, right? What percentage of social media posts actually get taken down by the Communist Party? I don't know, less than one-tenth of one percent, but that has a, a chilling effect on the rest of the population. And I'll tell you, when high school debate tournaments these days, the fear is palpable. It is absolutely palpable to where if you even use gendered language to refer to your opponent, if we're in a debate, as the NSDA tournament director told students in 2019, to not refer to your competitors by their Mr. or Miss and then their last name. So I would be condemned if I referred to Mr. Edelstein as Mr. Edelstein in that round. And because, it, of course, that reinforces that sex is binary and yada, yada, yada. I mean, that's the world that high school debate is living in. Well, so they, they said that about gendered language, what do they say about the sort of ideological paradigms that we've been talking about or the, the ad hominem character attacks that uh, Matthew was subject to? Do they support those? Do they encourage those? I mean, are these judges, uh, you know, kind of acting independently and outside the scope and framework that the NSDA has set out for them? Yeah, they, they've said absolutely nothing. And I, I spoke with a coach from who's been with the NSDA for 27 years from Kansas And he was extremely disappointed that the NSDA wouldn't even denounce, let alone remove, but wouldn't even denounce 
the judges that were brought up in the free press reporting. I mean, to the judge who tells students, if you merely use the word illegal immigrant, I will stand up, cut you off, you'll lose, and I'll give you a stern lecture. I will not have you make the debate space unsafe. Or to the judge who imposes uh, a restriction on your speech based on the color of your skin. I mean, the this is really easy to denounce, and yet the NSDA didn't. And by not denouncing it, here we are three months later, two months later, rather, they've essentially reinforced it and, and tacitly approved it. And it's going to be a very interesting season ahead. It's really tough to be a high school debater now if you just if you don't fall in line with the ideological dominance of the day. So, uh, James, it was either you or Matthew who had brought up critiques. This is uh, what Maya Bodnick's reporting and and the Substack slow boring boring uh, slow boring. Uh, that's Matt Iglesias's Substack. She published this. I don't know what day are we recording? August second. She published this over the weekend. Uh, we invite her on the show. She declined, but um, I think it's still worth talking here. And Matthew, you're actually quoted in that piece as well. You're all over the place. Um, but Matthew, maybe you can kind of describe what critiques are. And this isn't spelled uh, the way you know we spell critiques in English. This is K R I T I K, which I believe is probably German because it's maybe something that came from kind of the th critical theorists in the Frankfurt School. Um, but Matthew, I don't know if you have background here that you can explain what these are and how they're used in debate. Yeah. So the idea of a critique is that rather than addressing the topic directly they'll sort of challenge the underlying assumptions of the other team. So they'll argue something like, um, so suppose, for example, that the other team proposes a, um, a you know, tax on negative externalities to pollution, which is sort of the, the standard solution to pollution that seems to be supported by most economists that get people to internalize externalities. The other team would say, look, this is capitalist ideologically. And, you know, capitalism is this horrible system. And so, you know, even if this policy would be good in a vacuum, the other team should lose because they're they're supporting the horrible capitalist ideology. And instead, we should move away from capitalism. Um, so there are arguments that rather than directly addressing the question of whether the topic's a good idea or not, they seek to address sort of the underlying framework of the topic or of the other, something that's being argued by the other team. But very often teams will make critical arguments when they're the affirmative team, when they're arguing for the topic. Uh, and so when they do this, they'll just ignore the topic and talk about other things that, and then argue that they should win because they're talking about other things that are important. Yeah. Maya has an example in her reporting of uh, the affirmative side kind of kicking off the debate by proposing a critique, either to kind of undermine a critique that's going to come from the negative side um, or because you know, it's the way students apparently debate these days. Uh, but, you know, they kick it off by not even bothering to advocate for the original resolution. Quoting Maya here, for example, let's say the original topic was the U.S. should impose a carbon tax. Uh, the affirmative side could decide to throw the resolution out the window, instead argue for an Afro-pessimism critique, which might look something like this. Western societies are structured on Enlightenment-era philosophy that fundamentally uh, does not value black people as people and defines them as slaves. Even though documents like the Constitution have been amended to end slavery, it created a society that is rotten to the core, and the only way to fix it is to burn down civil society. So it's like you don't even get to the carbon tax because civil society itself 
uh, needs to be burned down, or Western society that is, which are built upon, which is built upon Enlightenment era philosophy, needs to needs to be burned down. I don't even know how you respond to that. I mean, how how do people respond to critiques that totally just toss out the fundamental proposition that the debate is built upon? Well, so one problem is that critiques are like notoriously slippery. So like arguing against them is is very much like trying to pin jello to a wall. So, you know, take the Afro-pessimism critique. Uh, you know, that critique, it's not convincing because it's a good argument. In fact, it's perhaps, I mean, one claim that's explicitly made by people who make the Afro-pessimism critique is, is that it is impossible for any policy to improve the lives of Black people. Now, that claim is obviously false. And everyone who has thought about it for one second knows that it's false. There's no magical structure that exists that makes it so that every policy which might improve the lives of Black people somehow is precisely offset such that it doesn't improve the lives of Black people at all. Um, but the reason the Afro-pessimism critique is convincing is because, or is made in debate is that there are just a lot of tricks you can do with it. So, you know, you make the claim that no, that society can't approve for Black people. You'll also have various arguments for why what the other team did was racist. Also have various arguments for why even if it wasn't, just burning down civil society is a better alternative, and you can't simultaneously do the things that are part of civil society while also burning down civil society. And so, like, you know, critical debaters have a sort of elaborate bag of tricks um, that, that make it surprisingly difficult to, to argue against. But, I mean, what you do is you just go through the claims that they're making and argue why each of them are false. So, for example, you argue that burning down society, in fact, would be a bad idea rather than a good idea. You point out that or flourishing Western civilization is a good thing that's lifted lots of people out of poverty, that it is in fact possible for policies to improve for black people, and that proposing reforms to water policy is not in fact racist. Um, yeah, I mean, it, but it, you're, you're, make, you're making almost, it's just like almost a fire hose of claims that you, that take more time to break down than to actually make in the first place or assert in the first place. But even then, you're building you know, if you take this in concert with judge paradigms, right, you're almost building a perfect rhetorical fortress for some arguments. So, okay, let's say you're discussing the carbon tax and someone decides to make an Afro-pessimism uh, argument. Uh, let's say that the person making that argument is a person of color. Then you go look at Lindsay Schrodick's paradigm that James highlights in his article that says that if you're white, don't run arguments with impacts that prim primarily affect people of color, these arguments should belong to communities they affect. So you make an Afro-pessimism argument, you're a person of color, you're a white person that's tasked with responding to that, you have some judges whose paradigms say that because the argument is primarily affects people of color, you shouldn't make those arguments. So it's it's it, it almost starts to seem like you're increasingly constrained if you're unwilling to play the game, or even by the nature of just the color of your skin in some cases, or at least in this judge's paradigm. Yeah. I think that's true. And that's one of the problems with these arguments, that the way that judges evaluate evidence for or against them is just completely and totally warped. So, I mean, imagine imagine if a person uh, in your you know daily life came to you and said, I'm convinced that it is logically impossible for any policy to ever improve the lives of Black people. And you say, oh, why do you think that? They say, well, I read this article from a critical theory journal that asserted as much, and it used lots of big words. No one would be convinced. And yet, in debate, if, if one side asserts that, you know, the world can't improve for Black people, and their evidence for it is abstruse critical theory jargon from 
some low-ranking critical theory journal published by Clown College, then that's seen as a powerful vindication of the impossibility of improving the lives of Black people. And in order to argue against that, the bar is extremely high. Uh, you have to provide, you know, quite robust empirical evidence that the world can improve for Black people. When really, I mean, like, the the bar, the, there are some claims that are so implausible that the bar for arguing for them should be very high. And yet in debate, judges treat these as if the bar is just basically is incredibly low, such that the burden for arguing against them is very high. Um, so it, it would be as if, uh, as if, you know, in debate rounds, it was seriously being debated whether the earth was flat. And then judges were, had a heavy bias in favor of the arguments, establishing that the earth was flat, um, rather than establishing that the, the earth was flat. Um, they have the bar for implausible arguments is much lower than the bar for plausible arguments. You mentioned critical theory a couple of times. I think it's worth us just kind of breaking that down and then and, and looking at kind of how it influences high school debates. I mean, critique is a form of argumentation that comes uh, from critical theory. I'm actually reading two books right now, Grand Abyss Hotel, which is about the Frankfurt School and uh, the Institute for Social Research and some of the kind of philosophers that stemmed from that school, including Herbert Marcuse and Max Horkheimer and Theodore Adorno. Um, and then I'm reading Chris, Chris Rufo's latest book, which talks a little bit about uh, critical theory and his kind of perception on how it's infiltrated institutions uh, within America. But correct me if I'm wrong, Matthew, you're the uh, philosophy student. Uh, critical theory posits that, um, you know, it's power structures in society that matter and less so individuals and a lot of social problems stem from those power structures rather than kind of how individuals independently might operate uh, within society. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's a lot of what they say. I mean, it, often the claims that they're making are very hard to pin down because they'll speak in this sort of abstruse jargon that's like very hard to understand. So, I mean, for example, you know, I think the, the most, the clearest vindication or the, the clearest uh, case against the reliability of critical theory came from uh, Alan Sokal's experiment where he published a paper um, about physics that was just total nonsense. It was a joke, uh, but it used lots of highfalutin jargon um, and lots of critical theory vocabulary. And then he sent it to a, a high-ranking critical theory journal and it got published. Uh, and then later this happened with a bunch of other people, James Lindsay, Helen Pluckrose, and uh, Peter Bogosian, I think. They also got a bunch of them published. The arguments are very implausible. And they've been shown, it's been shown that the journals that pr produce these arguments are willing to publish total nonsense and yet, in debate, they're treated as if they're like super reliable arguments, and if as if just the fact that something is a, asserted by a critical theory journal using lots of jargon is a really good reason to believe it, and you have to provide tons of evidence for why it's wrong. Yeah, James, in Maya's reporting, and I think you noted this er earlier, there are some debate formats where this is like two thirds or more of the arguments that are made. And I think she's only looking at kind of semifinal and final rounds in the tournament of champion. And she breaks down kind of where these arguments are most common, highlighting three debate formats. And I think it'd be helpful for you guys to kind of explain those to our, our listeners. There's a policy debate format. There's a Lincoln Douglas format and a public forum format. And what are, what are these different formats and why do we see far more critical theory or critiques in the policy format where it's 67% of the debates in the semifinal and final rounds featuring critical theory as opposed to like 
public forum where it's only 12 and a half percent. Yeah, I'll actually leave that to Matthew since he was the the policy debater. Uh, but I'll, I'll just note before then that it's it's not just obviously it's a really really high bar to be able to uh, to have a, an arguing a argument against a critique. You know, Maya brings up in a reporting, and I found this in mine as well that you know you can't respond to a critique by trying to invalidate what they're advancing. So, for example, you can't respond to a Marxist critique by saying that Marxism is wrong and capitalism is good. You have to explain something like, you know, Marxism doesn't go as far as Afro-pessimism. And, and you have to kind of, it's a race to the left. Who can be the bigger progressive in that? And so just to put a, a, some words behind that three out of four policy debate judges at the most recent tournament of champions entertaining, what do they actually tell students in their paradigms? Quote, I am frequently entertained and delighted by well-researched critical positions or critiques are my favorite arguments to hear and were the arguments that I read during the most of my career. I've exclusively read variations of Marxism, Leninism, and Maoism and happy to evaluate these debates. So this is the, the biggest issue here, Nico, is that judges are not just accepting tacitly. No, they're encouraging this type of argumentation. On Twitter a couple days ago, I tweeted out that it, it wouldn't be all that different if you went to a spelling bee, stood up there when it was your time to spell, let's just say cis-normative, because that's the word that the critique, you know, cis-heteronormative. It's your time to spell that word, and then you go up there and say, you know what? Spelling is merit, and merit is rooted in white supremacy, and I'm not going to spell I'm going to play the guitar. And then you bring out an electric guitar and go on the, the, you know, the riff from Gypsy, which is a really great one, but I probably shouldn't say that because that's not politically correct to use that word. So, or whatever the case is, right? And, and so that is just as bizarre and inappropriate as it would be during a debate on US water policy or on NATO expansion to say, no, no hold on one second. We got to actually talk about racism in America or, or whatever the case may be, or this ad hominem attack that Matthew uh, Edelstein was on the other side of. Yeah, I, I actually wanted to ask you guys, I hadn't thought about this before, but what sort of position or positions does this put judges in when debaters make these arguments? You know, so you you there, James, for example, uh, used kind of the white supremacy argument in positing your hypothetical. I imagine arguments toward white supremacy come up quite frequently in, in high school debate as as well. Or um, de de arguments, um, you know, about oppressor or oppressed, right, on the side of, uh, of marginalized communities. I, I can imagine if you're a debater, and they're they're making the argument that the other side's argument is white supremacist. If you're a judge, you you don't want to be seen to be favoring white supremacy, right? It's almost it's like um, I think Herbert Marcuse called this sort of framing uh, linguistic therapy as a way of kind of like shaping language to almost ma emotionally manipulate people because no one wants to be seen as a racist or a sexist or a white supremacist, right? So you frame the arguments that way and then you're, the, the people on the opposite side are almost on their back feet. And then you have the, all the listeners, in this case it might be the judges, who don't want to be seen or be um, – claim to be supporting those white supremacist arguments. So it's like, it, it almost puts, I imagine, the judges in a tough position too, if they wanted to support kind of the fundamental premise of the debate, which is the policy that's being debated. That's exactly right. And what you'll hear a lot of in high school debate and paradigms is this idea 
of the power of the ballot, the power of the ballot. And Matthew knows this term because that last debate round ever he competed in, the judge told him, quote, the ballot has a transformative power to challenge white debate norms where it is okay to let racist or violent activity slide. I, I feel as if a lot of judges take this way too seriously, as if their decision to vote for Matthew over the team that says that Matthew is racist, by voting for Matthew, they would be complicit in his ostensibly politically incorrect uh, tweet that is unmitigated racism uh, per the other team, right? So there's a lot of that to it as well, that these judges, you know, they, they really have to pinch themselves and remind, be reminded of the fact that this is an purely educational activity that's designed to expose students to different viewpoints, to build up critical thinking and public speaking skills and argumentation. It's not about your own politics. And a lot of judges have a hard time separating the role as an impartial adjudicator with their own political beliefs. So when a student goes up there and says, you know what, Israel has a right to defend itself. There are judges out there who would say, I can't possibly vote for that argument, even if it objectively won the round, because if it gets out to the rest of my local debate circuit, that I voted for a what they would probably deem a pro-apartheid argument that I will face social stigma as a result. And so this is the toxic culture that has become high school debate where the students, the judges, the coaches, everybody is looking over, you know, everyone is worried about the person behind them or, or doing something or saying something that might lead to them uh, being socially ostracized from this activity. Matthew, do you have anything to add there? Yeah, I, th I mean, I think I think that's largely true. I think part of the problem is that, it, so part of the reason why debate is so far left is that, you know, judges are worried about backlash and so on. But I think also a lot of it is just nearly all debaters are far left. And so left-wing signals of allegiance to left-wing policies are seen as totally innocuous and things that are treated as very normal among left-wing people and not at all normal among right-wing people are are treated as are like quite ubiquitous in debate one of my favorite philosophers uh, a guy named michael humor has an article called why not shibboleths and the basic point is that very often in lots of spaces like debate you'll have people just doing very innocuous things that signal left-wing allegiances so he gives this example of imagine that you know every time you went into a room you know, everyone just had a little Trump flag at a debate tournament. Well, you know, you would you would sort of sense that debate was kind of far right. Um, well, in debate, it's not the case usually that people have have Biden flags. So very often, people will have laptop stickers that do actually signal their political allegiance. So I think you know, like something like half of debaters have some laptop sticker that describes some left wing policy. But it's not just that; it's the the vernacular that's common in debate. So, for example, debaters frequently. Uh, talk about psychic violence. I remember, you know, when I first went into debate, I was sort of a libertarian, and I just found the term psychic violence to be just a bizarre term. I mean, how can, you know, words, what, what does it even mean unless you're like using telepathy to attack someone? Um, but, uh, you know, psychic violence apparently means when you say things that are, that are offensive. Um, and, you know, lots of left-wing people use the term. I've never heard a right-wing person use the term. Um, and so it's like the, the way in which debaters talk is a way that exclusively left-wing people talk such that it's just it's very clear to everyone that the community is left and that right-wing arguments will not be tolerated or another example is 
a huge portion of judges have pronouns in their bio or in their judge paradigm. I don't know of a single conservative who puts their pronoun in their bio. I know of lots of liberals who do it. So it's like just all the things that are done in debate are done to signal one's political allegiance to an ideology, to a tendentious ideology that's disagreed with by about half the country. Um, and so it's sort of it's sort of no surprise that that uh, that that left wing arguments flourish. Yeah, James, in your reporting, you talk about one student at the 2018 NSDA National Tournament in Fort Lauderdale who uh, wrote a open letter on Reddit about her experience and you know, the student made conservative arguments during during the debate tournament and she said I really I believe it was she could be wrong though yeah she later um, she later posted uh, and this is portion of what she said I really did not appreciate your words toward me after the round she's talking to the people who are in the audience I did not appreciate the spectators competitors wearing shirts with matching sentiments uh, following me around in my next rounds. I understand I speak fast sometimes, and I often unknowingly use words that offend certain groups of people. Also, I'm really sorry that my attire did not fit your standards. I know about the stain on my shirt, but it is really all that I had. Uh, suggests maybe some like classism there as well, if that's really all it's, that's really all that she had. But her, you know, Matthew, you, what you just said about the the kind of subtle use of language in these debates, what she's saying there is that is suggestive of the fact that she doesn't speak uh, kind of in that left wing dialectic. And as a result, she's unwittingly perhaps stepping on landmines that only those on the left might be aware of, uh, if you came up, keep up with, keep up with the kind of dialogue surrounding left wing issues or their approach to those issues, I should say. Yeah, I, I agree a hundred percent. And you know, this, this tragic case of this young girl, to add what you said, the judges and students were following her around wearing shirts that said F U C K Trump. And um, because she, quote, you know, she committed the crime, in her words, of, quote, unknowing, unknowingly using words that offend certain groups of people. And this was something that, you know, I looked at it in part two of my reporting for the free press, was a lot of judges saying things in a very cute and subtle way that were very political. You know, one of the things, the pronoun in bios is one of them. But to Matthew's point, but this idea of judges telling students in their paradigms not to make transphobic arguments. And there were over two dozen of those judges at the most recent national tournament in Phoenix. And I emailed every single one of them and I asked them, what is a transphobic argument? And only one of the 26 got back to me and declined to answer. I actually listed five potential arguments and asked him to rate which were transphobic. And I, the reason why, because I, I suspect that what, what is transphobic for them is something that 70% of Americans would likely agree with, the idea that children cannot consent to permanent sex changes or that a 14-year-old girl cannot consent to a double mastectomy or a so-called gender-affirming hysterectomy. These are voices and perspectives that are desperately needed in high school debate. There's an Axios-Ipsos poll from a couple months ago that found that 70% of young Democrats would not date a Republican and 40% of young Republicans would not date a Democrat. And those numbers ought to be zero, right? We should not be prejudging any type of relationship with someone on the basis of politics. And so at a time when the country is so deeply divided, to tell people you can't make a, quote, transphobic argument that if you're white, you can't even talk about urban violence in places like Baltimore or Chicago, it's antithetical to free speech and open debate, and it's fundamentally un-American. 
to close out the conversation here, I want to ask, oh, go ahead, Matthew, you can give closing thoughts on that. Oh, yeah, just to add on briefly to, to James's point, I, I, I think this is true. I mean, one sort of amusing instance of this was there were lots of people, so James hosted a Twitter space a while back where uh, people could, um, people who disagreed with this reporting could explain why they disagreed with people who disagreed with the free press articles. And there were lots of people who, you know, said, oh, you know, this is overblown. Judges don't read critical theory arguments. And so James would ask them like, okay, so, uh, you know, would you vote for, for example, if a team, if it was relevant to the topic and a team argued that there shouldn't be gender affirming care, what liberals refer to as gender affirming care um, given to minors, would that be a transphobic argument that you would vote against? And they would simultaneously assert that there's no judge bias and also that you would automatically lose in front of them if you made this argument, despite this being a view held by more than half the country. Um, and I, I think that this goes to show just how thorough the echo chamber is in debate. Um, I, I think the, the point about how debate has a, debaters have a peculiar way of talking is, is very true. Um, I mean, very often, one problem is that prior to getting into debate, people sort of talk, talk like normal people. And debate has its own very peculiar set of terms and norms, such that there's sort of a stigma when you sort of talk like a normal person, say things that conservatives say, given that that's sort of what's said by debate novices before they become inculcated in the peculiar doublespeak that's rampant in debate. I mean, one, one particularly bizarre example of this was there was one round where I argue that utilitarianism was the right ethical theory. Utilitarianism says that you should take the actions that maximize how well off people are in the aggregate. The other team claimed that this was all lives matter logic because you're counting all people's lives as equally valuable. And so what, what I said in response was, well, you know, all lives matter, the political movement, we don't have to endorse that, but clearly the slogan all lives matter is true. The alternative is some lives not mattering. And the judge, well, they didn't vote against me for this. In debate, you'll get speaker points, which rank how, which are sort of like, they're useful for tiebreakers. They rank how well you did over the course of that round. Usually, I would get some, I'd say the average number of speaker points I would get is maybe 29.1, something around there. The judge gave me 27.1 speaker points, which is much, much lower. Um, I That was the lowest speaker points I ever got. And explicitly said it was because I said that the slogan, all lives matter, is a true slogan. When... I even denounced the political movement, but, you know, uh, because I didn't do it in the right kind of debate speech. There, it wasn't there, the, yeah, I mean, that kind of is a good segue into my last question for you, which is more just a curiosity for me as a non-high school debater. In Maya's article, there is a footnote about speed debating or like how it's she, – because she was citing to all these examples of critiques and she said if you go and look at these, you might not understand them, not just because the arguments kind of are ephemeral and abstract but also because they're talking at like 350 <laughs> um, – what is it? Beats per minute or – you know, I don't, I don't know what it was uh, in the YouTube headline but it's like this way of talking in, in debate that is – or debating that is just so fast that you can't understand what people are saying. Reproach race, nullism, ultraism, ultraization, with state of domination, non-legitimate global one, by three meters, and there's no evidence can broad scale extinction. Nature maps already allocated functionally plotting the plant cells also with Lunchero. Can you guys talk about what is that trend? It's extraordinary, and I don't get it. So what am I missing? Um, I mean, I, I'm actually sort of more sympathetic to this than than I think a lot of other people. I think, you know, like, uh, I mean, so debate at the high levels is much more of, like, 
a technical point scoring game than it is about persuasion. And that's sort of for better or worse, I think largely worse. Um, but, and so as a result, uh, as long as you're making the points, it doesn't really matter how fast you make them. And so there's an incentive to talk quickly. I mean, I think that uh, one problem is that debate has really, is that policy debate has a very weird norms for citation, where after you read a claim that's backed up by evidence, you have to read the tech, the like, words that the evidence says that back up the claim. This is not how any, you know, academic uses it. Academics use footnotes where they'll say, make a claim and they'll say, this is supported by this source rather than having to read, like provide a full paragraph of what exactly the source said. And so as a result of that, you know, the way debaters talk is just like, because of this really inefficient citation style that's demanded, it's just really inefficient. And so they have to talk quickly to make any significant number of points. So, I mean, I think, you know, in my ideal world, people would talk much more slowly, but also this, this bizarre citation style where you have to like read entire paragraphs in order to uh, make claims backed up by evidence would also be done away with so that we'd make a similar number of points. But, um, but if, if we can keep the citation style, then you would just get the unfortunate result that debaters would make like one point a minute um, just that the things would be very slow and inefficient. So I think, you know, given this, this bizarre citation style, speed talking is, is worth keeping. Um, oh, that's interesting. But, so it's, yeah. I, you know, as a non-debater, I didn't know what, what the incentives were, uh, for debaters. And it sounds like speed talking is a result of, of certain upset, uh, incentives, because when I think about, and this isn't debate necessarily, but speech, I think about some of the best speeches, a lot of it is knowing when to command silence, speak quickly or slowly, kind of having that natural narrative arc. Like if you look at Roosevelt's speech after the bombing at Pearl Harbor, December 7th, 1941, a day which will live in infamy. It's like he's, he's, he's you know, five or six words he takes 10 seconds to say because he's trying to make an impact. You look at Churchill's speeches during World War II as well. Again, these aren't debates, these are speeches, but like, they're they're deliberately kind of it's almost musical the way that they're speaking as as a way to kind of make an impact and i didn't realize in debate that there's this kind of citation incentive that incentivizes folks to speak fast so that they can get as many citations perhaps in as possible that's interesting hmm. yeah i mean debaters sort of replace the normal way people speak eloquently with just when there's a point that's especially important they just say it more loudly um, <laughs> rather than the way normal people speak. Yeah. And these, are, and these aren't terribly fungible skills. And I think that's the issue, right? We can talk about speed and maybe Matthew and I disagree on it. Sounds like it. Um, but these just the idea to dig up dirt, ad hominem attacks, hijack a debate, jettison the topic, talk about X when you really should be talking about Y. So great, you win, you might get a scholarship, but at the end of the day, 10 years later, are these skills that you can actually use in your day-to-day -day life? And the answer is no. Yeah, I, I think that's definitely true. And if you look at a lot of the debaters who read critical theory arguments, they're now like embittered Twitter English majors who have nothing going for them and who are not, not doing much in life. Yeah, just being on Twitter in general. Although, James, you seem to really love Twitter spaces. Uh, so I'd encourage our listeners to follow uh, follow you if they want to join one of those Twitters. What's your handle, James? It is J underscore Fishback, just how it sounds. Yeah, and Matthew, do you have one that's public that you want to share? Or do you not do Twitter? Um, yeah, I don't remember what the handle is off the top of my head. <laughs> yeah, you uh, escaped Twitter after but that. But if you that, just type in uh, Bentham's Bulldog, it'll come up. Yeah, yeah. So 
um, by by kind of way of closing here, I'm assuming since you both, you know, Matthew, you were cited in James and Maya's article. James, you've published two articles. You've been hearing from a lot of folks. Um, what's the sense from the general public? Are they like me who kind of was unaware of this world and is absolutely shocked by how it's kind of become hijacked by ideology? Um, or is there a lot of people, kind of additional people coming out of the woodwork saying, yeah, this is such a problem. Thank you for shedding light on it. Yeah, I, I'm, I've got a lot of people who've reached out since the since part one came up in the free press at the end of May. I'm most encouraged by the judges and the current judges and students who reached out and thanked me for writing about this uh, because they just, they didn't feel like they were able to bring up this point. It's something they've had, you know, they've been with, it's been with them for a while, these concerns, these criticisms. And really, we've got to fix it. And, you know, I've started my own nonprofit debate league, Incubate Debate in Florida, but that's not going to fix this problem nationally, to tell you the truth. We need competing institutions. My advice to the NSDA would be get rid of debate judges in the traditional sense, right? Bring in non-debate, non, you know, non-former debate debaters to come judge these tournaments, kind of like what Incubate Debate has done. Bring in first responders, bring in local college professors, bring in members of the armed forces, veterans, local elected officials. And effectively what you do is when you take away the marketplace for critical Marxism to be the the, the, the ideology of choice in a debate round, you end up, cre- you know, the, the issue here is that if judges weren't so willing to accept this type of argumentation, and 99% of society wouldn't either, then you you largely fix the problem. Students start to lose because they realize that hijacking a debate isn't going to change the minds, isn't going to convince anybody on a random street in America, and and then they have to adapt accordingly. I think that's the best advice I could give the NSDA is drop the current existing judges, bring on members of the local community, these sort of citizen judging panels. That's going to go a long way to fix a lot of the problems they're facing. Well, great. I think we're going to leave it there. If folks are interested in learning more about Incubate Debate, uh, which James, of course, is a founder and executive director of, you can go to incubatedebate.org. And if folks are interested in reading Matthew's uh, writing on utilitarianism, they can visit benthams.substack.com. Again, that's benthams.substack.com. And uh, Matthew, I believe you write under uh, the pseudonym Bentham's Bulldog. Is that right? Yeah. So I encourage folks to check that out. Uh, follow James, of course, on, on Twitter and uh, stay tuned. And again, if you are interested in, t- in attending the debate in L.A., Has the Sexual Revolution Failed, that we are sponsoring, and which is hosted by the Free Press, I will be there. It's on September 13th. Please make your way over to thefp.com slash debates. And... If you have any feedback for Matthew or James or myself or general feedback about the podcast, you can, of course, go to, to your email and email us at, so to speak, at thefire.org. We also take reviews on the show if you enjoyed listening. And we're on most of the social media channels, so just search for Free Speech Talk or So to Speak Podcast. We'll find you there. And Matthew, James, I appreciate you guys joining the show. Our pleasure. Thank you very much, Nico. Thanks for having me.